Hi, it's Sarah here. I just wanted to sneak in real quick before the music starts to tell you about an exciting new product we have just announced from Swivel. It's called Mirror, and it's a new tool made to recognize the potential of reflection in classrooms. We built Mirror to thrive with AI, to reflect easier, and to partner with teachers. And we're launching it with a limited time campaign for schools to partner with us on development, buy it at a discount, and when you buy, be able to donate a second device to a school of your choosing. There's also an opportunity to win a device for free. My opinion? I think Mirror is where you and your students are going to meet your potential self. Check out the show notes in today's episode for a link to all the info you need to start exploring and entering to win today. One of the best ways to take really good care of students and their learning is to take really good care of teachers and their learning. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Optimalist, a podcast where we have set out to examine the higher order capabilities that we need to build an optimal future alongside AI. If you're new here, I am Sarah, your host through this exploration of the elements of human flourishing. Today's guest is a lover of learning who believes in the goodness of people. As a former ELA teacher, her mantra is words matter and you can tell. She's taught middle and high school, been an assistant principal, a principal, a district administrator, and a consultant. And most recently, she's just released a book last week called Legacy of Learning, Teaching for Lasting Impact. When I was talking with today's guest, I could not stop jotting down reactions to the people she quotes and other professionals she references, not to mention her own phrases. It has such an impact on the conversation that it was hard for me to ignore. She says things like, you need experience to develop your passions, and we all have things in ourselves that only others see. These are only two examples, and I'm excited for all of you to listen and find your own gems of wisdom in this celebratory book release episode with Megan Lawson. My path to becoming an educator is not one that has a lot of inspiration to offer in that a lot of people have these really beautiful stories. And I write about this in my book, actually. Um, A lot of people have these beautiful stories of my mom was a teacher. Uh, I played school growing up. I always knew I was going to be an educator. I actually uh, wanted to be a professional dancer. Like I wanted to move to Broadway. I wanted to do shows, live out of a backpack. Uh, And my mom being a very practical single mom was telling me, you know, you don't need a degree uh, to pursue that. You need to have a backup plan. Like She wanted to make sure that I was always going to be able to support myself. So I grew into a love and a deep passion for this profession. I didn't start with one. And so uh, I tell that story because I think sometimes we talk to students about, oh, what are you passionate about? Uh, when really you need experience in order to develop your passion. And so I needed some experiences in order to realize that this was something really meaningful and fun and rewarding for me. And so I learned a lot of hard lessons early in my career as a teacher. Um, I taught for eight years, taught seventh grade English, taught high school English. Um, not in that order, actually. Strike that reverse, as Willy Wonka <laughs> would say. 
And uh, I ended up in an educational administration because I had a principal at the time who said to me, I think that you should think about becoming a principal. And I think we've all have people in our lives that sort of see things in us maybe that we're not ready to see for ourselves. And I might remember distinctly saying to her, who would ever want to do your job? Your job looks terrible. And she said, no, yes, my job is hard. Uh, but if you want to make an impact outside your classroom, it's not the only way to make an impact, but it is a way to make an impact. And I think what I learned through that without boring everyone with all the details of like my resume and steps along the way as I've journeyed into my current role as director of secondary teaching and learning in a local district in the Cincinnati, Ohio area, is that one of the best ways to take really good care of students and their learning is to take really good care of teachers and their learning. And when you ask me what lights me up or what um, gets me excited uh, or what feels meaningful in my work, I am really excited about creating experiences that for staff, for adults, that we would hope to see for students in the classroom. Well-cared-for people are better equipped to care for people. And so I would say that if anything, at the end of my journey in this profession, I would hope that people would be able to say that is true about me. I love so much about what you just said. And I wanted to go back to, I wrote down three quotes straight from straight from <laughs> you already. And we've only been recording for four minutes, but um, I wanted to go back to what you said about, you need experience to develop your passions. You said a few things about passions there and talking to people about the meaning of having, like what it means to be passionate about something. And I think we I think we blow that concept out of proportion sometimes and we assume that everyone's just born with this, you know, ideal of finding something that they love and I think that a lot of people don't like they like they flail with like what is it that I really want to or could potentially dedicate my time to. I think I think it's way more we're so used to like the clichés that, that are surrounding passion and passionate choices and experiences but like I just think it's such a it's such a more complicated concept that we don't spend enough time thinking about what it means when we you know when we tell young kids like to think about what they're passionate about because I think of so many adults I talk about this a lot with people I think of so many adults I know that wouldn't be able to pinpoint um, something that they feel strongly enough that they would know how or want to dedicate time to or make a career out of. I don't know if you agree with me, but I'm just I'm I do. I, I feel felt like you might because of the way you phrased that. This and but I loved that kind of unlocked something in my mind. Needing experience to develop passions. You know, I first started thinking about this. Um, I read Liz Boham. Bohannon, I hope I haven't butchered her name, her book, Beginner's Pluck. Uh, but she talks a lot about this in that book. And something you just said reminded me of of our students in school. And you were talking about um, when you were going back to that whole experiences concept. I think a lot of our students in school have experiences gaps. It's like some of our students are going to show up and they have access to a network of people, whether it's inside of the their own home um, or in their community, that will 
take them, you know, to the theater or uh, take them to see different things or talk to them about different things that exist or give them exposure to different books even. And there's going to be students for a variety of reasons who have limited experiences. And so it's going to be much harder for them to um, uncover a passion if they lack experience. And I heard someone say not too long ago, I think there was a book on this, that when we think about things like we talk about the achievement gap in our schools, um, often more important than what our students know is actually who our students know mm. and um, having access to lots of people and lots of different people and different experiences and different learning that comes with having people uh, surrounding you uh, who can expose you to the, all the different possibilities that the world has to offer. And so it just uh, is something that I think uh, we could think about a little bit more in school. You know, we often are good about addressing gaps in reading, gaps in math, um, but I think there, that we could probably be a lot better at addressing gaps in experiences. The experience gap or the passion, the passion gap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've been talking a lot about and thinking a lot about um, the concept of adaptability recently. Um, it's kind of becoming very quickly the core of a lot of the work that I'm doing, along with some of the other things that, that I'm always talking about. But it is quickly becoming the center as we really face so many rapid and confusing changes, especially in the landscape of technology as AI moves into our, you know, further and further into our immediate spaces. And we have to, especially in school settings, have to really grapple with its existence every day and, and how or what are, what does this landscape look like in a year, in five years? And it's so murky, but this idea of, um, needing to be able to shift. I think it's interesting to think of that in connection with what you're talking about as far as experience and passion. You talk about your own journey or what you think of as a lack of maybe traditional inspiration to do what you are currently doing. But so much of that has to do with having experience or little experiences that you then adapt to and find something that you latch onto. And then maybe you would say it's a passion. Maybe you wouldn't. Uh, maybe you're like, oh, I don't know if I was passionate. I just found that I was good at it. Sometimes experience reveals things that you are that you have like a real skill for that other people need you for. And maybe it's not something you'd be like, wow, this is something I really love, but it's something you identify and, and realize that you can fill and do well at. And it's great when passion and skill come together, but that's not always the case. And so like, yeah, I'm thinking about this idea of being adaptable and how maybe that is something that we should be thinking about flexibility, adaptability, experience more so than teaching the core of like, let's find something we love. I think that's interesting to think about because when I think about what it takes to be adaptable, which is something that's so critical to adults and students alike, I think about what experience gives us. And you kind of unpack that a little bit 
on the developing uh, possibly passions or not so passion that like information about yourself that, okay, maybe that doesn't quite do it for me and how helpful all of that is. And on the other side of that is experience often lends us confidence Mm. and that can also lead to satisfaction. And maybe that's not passion, but that's something that can help us find the energy to try again the next day. And, and I heard someone say the other day that confidence comes from seeing yourself be comp- competent at something challenging. And the only way to become more competent at challenging things is to attempt challenging things. And often having lots of experience um, or experiences where you apply different durable skills, as an example, you might realize like, okay, you know, like the art of handling difficult conversations. There's lots of great books like Radical Candor out there that give you lots of great um, strategies to try. You don't build your skill set and your confidence in that without having experience doing it and trying it in different, with different people in different settings. And so I think it's another example of just why experience is so important. Yeah, uh, that was beautifully said. And I didn't even have to ask you a question. You found something to answer, which is great. <laughs> I often go on, I latch onto something that someone says that I love. And then I go on these tangents. And I'm like, did I ask a question in there? I don't know if I did. But I'm like, please, secretly saying, please find something to comment on. <laughs> um, but but you did it really well. And I also did want now it's gonna seem like I'm jumping a little back. But like, I also wanted to go back and comment on something else you said, which seems to be at the core of what you're focusing on is this idea of taking really good care of teachers. I loved everything that you were talking about regarding regarding that, you know, there was something about the way you were, the way you worded all of your comments about how we it's it's more about just how, how do we treat teachers? It goes beyond. It's like, how do we treat each other? Like, we have to think about taking care of the people that are taking care of our kids. And I know that's a common thing for people to, to you see people messaging about this on Twitter, posting about it. But um, something about the way you worded that really stood out to me. And I put a little circle around it in my notes that it resonated with me. I really believe deeply in in this. Uh, Katie Martin has a, a chapter in her book, Learner, Learner-Centered Innovation. The whole chapter title is Teachers Create What They Experience. And beyond teachers, I think often that's what we all do. We we often create what we experience. Mm-hmm. And so it goes back to experience again, I guess. But something that I think we are bad about in education, not just specific to this particular topic, but sometimes we're well-meaning, but we villainize practices over other practices or one side of something versus the other side. And here's where I'm going with that as it pertains to taking care of teachers. Often people will say, well, I'm all about the students. And so in saying that, they mean sometimes, right? Like, well, um, we're going to take focus on and make decisions about students um, and we're going to not focus on 
the impact on teachers or teachers, you know, uh, the teacher side of implementing, you know, this change or this work. And the truth is both can and should be true. Both can coexist, as Tammy McGregor would say, embrace the ampersand, mm. right? It's not like this or that. Um, both can be true. There's enough for both of us. Um, there's enough love for both of us. We're all learners. Um, so we all, we take great care of all learners. And so, I just try to be really mindful of that. It doesn't mean that we're not doing hard things together. Um, you know, it doesn't mean that we're totally just setting aside things that feel hard. What you'd hear my superintendent say is we have to decide, is this doable hard or is this destructive hard? And if it's doable hard, then we're really going to work on a plan to figure out how to make it happen. If it's destructive hard, we really need to take a hard look at that. I love that phrasing of doable hard or destructive hard. It reminds me of something that I have lived by a lot over the last couple of years, especially, which is the idea when you think about hard stuff or, or committing yourself to doing things that are hard. Um, you can almost think of it as choosing what your suffering is because even the things that you like to do or want to pursue or accomplish are going to be sometimes feel feel like you don't want to do them because they are a commitment or there there are parts of it that might seem almost impossible to get through or you want to do something else and in a way all of that is a part of I mean everything we do or don't do is causing a suffering in some way and so the idea of you know we we're all going to we're going to suffer our whole lives so choose what it is that you're suffering for because that is going to make all the difference. Are you are you choosing to do hard things that are going to like you just put are are they doable or destructive? I think that's another great a great way of summarizing that a little and a little bit more friendly than calling it suffering, which whenever I say that to people, <laughs> people are like, dude, what are you talking? <laughs> I'm like, life is suffering. <laughs> I just sound like a well, philosopher yeah. all the time. <laughs> and an added layer to that, Sarah, is Something can be really great in and of itself, but if you put it alongside the other things that are hard that we're doing, suddenly this really beautiful thing is destructive. It might not be in and of itself like destructive, mm -hmm. but you have to be really mindful of how much can we take on at one time and what feels the most impactful and the most important right now. And do we need to? sort of put this one on the back burner because we don't have the capacity right now. I think being a little bit more honest with ourselves and our systems mm -hmm. about what needs to happen when or what can happen when um, is important, which is why I'm really passionate about, like I'm looking down at my feet, I have sneakers on. While I have a district office role, I am in the buildings every day because if I'm not, here with the, with people in the work with people, it'd be really easy for me to get a different kind of impression about what's doable. Um, and I might, you know, lose sight of how the day-to-day -day feels. So it's just really important to me that I don't lose the heartbeat of the school building, which, you know, is ultimate goal for me is to remove barriers and to create opportunity for everybody in our schools. And I can't do that if I don't have a really solid understanding of what's happening in school. I love that philosophy. And I think a lot of the leaders that are listening to this episode are 
or who listen to this show in general are going to find a lot that they would agree with there. And we are talking about a couple of different ways to frame or think about similar concepts. I wanted to ask you about, you say that your mantra is that words matter. And so can you, if you can, maybe explain a little bit about why that's so important to you? Because of course they do matter, but to state that enthusiastically as part of who you are and uh, and what you do is is a totally different level. So maybe you could elaborate. Sure. I think I mean a lot of things by that, not just, you know, of course we all know that they matter, but because I believe they matter so deeply, um, I think it shows up in my work a couple of ways. One being not just which words we choose to say, but the the format and which we choose to say them. Um, an example would be, I really believe in the value of conversation, actual human interaction, um, whether it's via phone or in person. And sometimes I find it's best if things feel hard and you receive something in writing an email, as an example, you know, someone might be really upset about something, or you can tell that there's a lot of emotions surrounding another thing that they want to talk to you about. Certainly, I reply to let them know I received their email. And then I usually say, you know, this feels really important. I want to make sure that you and I get some time together to talk about this more. Is there a good time for me to call you or is there a good time for us to meet? So just being together and using words in person, I find, um, is a way to extend care at a deeper level. And it tends to help me avoid miscommunication. Um, you know, I think you could sit behind your keyboard and work on that perfectly crafted email, but you just never know how the punctuation or a certain word that you cho- you chose to use or the format of that email, how it might land with somebody. So that's one example. The other is something that I'm talking in our buildings a lot about this year is, and I'm on the secondary side, so I work with the middle school and high school grades 6 through 12. And typically on secondary schedules, kids rotate through and see, uh, they rotate through and they see different teachers. They see different groups of kids throughout the day. And I'm very curious how many of our students uh, know each other's names in all of their classes, not just does their teacher know their name. Our staff is so good about that. And even at the beginning of the, of the year, there's these great get to know you activities, but then, you know, you get busy with, um, you know, instructional uh, focus and it's easy to lose sight of our kids saying each other's names. I just want to make sure that staff and students don't go an entire day without hearing their name and hearing their name used correctly. And it's an example of a word that I think matters very deeply as we work to cultivate belonging in our school community. The way you talk about some of these things that you're working on or I want to say passionate about or believe in, you're kind of putting me into like this calming trance over here as I listen to you. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if people say that to you, but you have such a a way of talking about anything I think that you're, that you're doing that makes it sound, you know, up to the way you are bringing in the thoughts and, um, words of people who you admire or other educators or people that are in your, maybe in your building, you're peppering this conversation with other people's experience and things that have, um, helped you move forward or understand something. And I think all of that together. It just builds you into someone who can speak about this in a way that makes other people want to 
come right into your world and do it along with you. So I could see that I could see how that's probably very impactful in your role as a leader it, it, uh, at the district level. I'm just like, wow, I could listen to her talk about this and want to, you're inspiring me. This is what I really want to tell you. <laughs> well, thank you for that. I mean, it's an example. I'm feeling so affirmed hearing that from you. It's just an example of, you know, you were so thoughtful on how you shared those words with me just now. And you affirmed me with genuine specificity. Uh, and that made me feel it and believe it more. So, like you just modeled for us what it looks like to give really meaningful feedback that somebody can internalize, you know, instead of just like, well, you're so good at that. You unpacked it a little bit. And so you just gave us a little masterclass whenever we yeah. all give feedback to people back in our districts that we too should really try to think of some examples or, um, you know, so that people can say, you know what? Wow. I see that in myself and, and build that sense of affirmation. You referenced a few published things or, or writers or, or anything, if anything is um, that we can link in the show notes for people to actually access with those people's names, that would be really great because uh, this it, it's standing out to me, this conversation is one that is being pulled in with influences from other places. And I would like to acknowledge that because it makes it feel like a really rich listening experience, I think. If we can also then provide the the words that are impacting you, that you're then using with me, that are impacting me and our audience. So it's a whole circle. I love that. But I wanted to give you some space to talk a little bit about the book that you have coming out. By the time everyone's listening to this, this book will already be released. I think you said it's. we're recording on the 30th of October, so it comes out this Thursday. Is that correct? That's correct. This Thursday, November 2nd. It's called Legacy of Learning, Teaching for Lasting Impact. And what what has been the the journey of of this creation and um and what can we look to expect there? Thank you for asking that. I'm excited to talk about the book. So there's a quote I love, and I'm forgetting who this one's by, but in so many words, it's uh, don't ask yourself what the world needs. Uh, find what makes you come alive because what the world needs are people who've come alive. And at the heart of this book um, is a desire to take great care of educators in that we all want to make a meaningful impact on students. It's why it's why we went into these jobs. This book is about uncovering how you do that and how you have a great time and make these jobs fun again while you're making that meaningful impact without losing yourself in the process. I think a lot of people are feeling overworked, overstimulated, overwhelmed, and the future of our world depends on us figuring this out, um, figuring out how to be well so we can do great work. What does that look like in our personal habits? And what does that look like? Um, in our personal practice in the classroom. I think we are really good at overcomplicating some of our work in education. Um, And there are some really great things that we could be doing that require very little planning, uh, just some commitment and intentionality um, in the classroom every day. And a lot of us know what those things are. We just lost our way a little bit because of so many things coming at us at one time. So it's about making a meaningful impact 
really enjoying what you're doing and living a good life along along the way. I think using that word overcomplicated, that perfectly, I think, encapsulates what a lot of people, I, I can hear like people listening to this in a collective, uh-huh, yep, like going along, <laughs> like everyone kind of validating the use of that word because I think it encapsulates what people feel but don't know exactly uh, how to label it maybe. It just becomes so much that and keeps being added and things aren't taken away. And something I'm actually asking teachers now that I'm, I'm working on a little um, pro- like a PD project for school leaders, actually. And I am asking people like, if you're going to add X, Y, and Z, what can you take away? And I think that's part of the overcomplication, right? Is that we keep adding and not not realizing how much we actually can subtract. And I think thinking about where the lasting impact comes it comes from make, being able to make those choices, right? What are you willing to suffer for? <laughs> yeah. And while leaders are trying to figure out systems um, and the stuff that impacts what happens in the individual teacher's classroom, that leaves them where? It leaves them trying to figure out for themselves. And so the book is about what do we do as teachers right now to make this work feel manageable and feel really good? Um, while the system of school needs to get figured out. And I think a principal could could also get a lot out of it because I think they could be thinking about how they support teachers uh, in that thought process and planning process. Um, but I hope that, if nothing else, the people who read my book leave feeling lighter, not heavier. They leave feeling affirmed in how much they matter and equipped with some things they could do um, or affirmed in some things that they're trying and some things that can fall off as well. It's an honest book. I think it's why I'm a little nervous to put it out. I mean, it's not like a Britney Spears tell all, but it's just, (laughs) but it's an honest book. I'm not an edu hero. Um, I don't have it all figured out. I'm still grappling with this myself, but we have to be able to start having honest conversations about this topic. In order to do that, I have to be really honest about some of my experiences as well. Yeah. And this is what we exactly what we need more of, though. We need people like you who are saying this is exactly pretty much exactly how you just stated it, that this is going to be honest and it's going to be something that maybe you didn't know that you needed. But here it is. Like, what what do you think? You know, this is another thing that's been I've seen cropping up lately is this idea of of uh what was the word you just used? Did you say edu hero? Is that yeah. <laughs> yeah. This idea of like the, per- especially if you live on, uh, you know, in the Twitter world a lot where you see a lot of that stuff develop and evolve over time and people being in this, in the edu spotlight and, and all of that stuff. We, I've heard these little reverberations of that landscape changing a lot too. And I think what you're explaining, like looking for, for like, the people in the spotlight is kind of done. And like, I think what you're explaining is like the stepping forward of people doing this work every day and saying like, well, here's my story and what I want to know how you, you know, how you relate to it. Like, this is what we need to do. And I think more of that realistic slice of life is what we're going to be grappling to. And it make a grappling onto and it makes sense because of I think it culturally makes sense because we're living partly in this very tech, um, almost anti-social, anti-reality world. And then on the other side of that, people are starting to really, really long for, you know, 
community, real people. What are, what are the people around me doing and caring about? How do I connect with them? And what you're describing is just one part of that. I think like we need, we need to know what's actually going on. And I think that, um, the way you describe your book is a perfect start to that. Well, I appreciate that. I hope that anyone reading the book would feel like it was just two, two people trying to figure it out, you know, having coffee. I think our schools need less shiny, perfect people and more deeply human people. Uh, there are no perfect people, but there are, there is an impression that some people are just seem to have it all together. And I'm really worried about what that could do to our future and the future of our schools, because we all know that we're not perfect. And if we look at these jobs um, and we see students see what they perceive to be perfect people teaching and teachers look to administrators and see only perfect people administrating. I don't know if I made that word up and so on <laughs> and so forth. Um, then we've made these jobs out of reach of everyone. And yeah. we make these jobs something that only perfect people do and the perfect people simply don't exist. Um, I would rather us focus on making these jobs meaningful and manageable um, and as fun as they can be um, so that people say, you know what, I wonder if I want to do that or if I could do that. There's a national shortage of educators. I think it's incumbent upon all of us to take a closer look at how we do our, not just do our work, but also how we talk about our work. That is beautifully put. Um, that's a, a perfect way to end the this part of the conversation. And so, so your book comes out on I'm now looking at my calendar because I don't know the dates because it's the end of the month. So it's Thursday, yeah. November 2nd. So like I said before, when this comes out and everyone is listening, it will already be out. And it, I'm assuming it's available everywhere or will be. Yes. Uh, you can easily get it on Amazon. Okay. Awesome. Well, the way I like to wind down every conversation is to give people a chance to give us a little snippet into maybe um, some other parts of their brain or what they're taking in and consuming out there in the, uh, world. So you can, you can tell us as little or as much as you want, but we like to know, is there anything you are reading right now, listening to, or even watching maybe that you would like to give a shout out or recommend? It doesn't have to be, it can, some things, some people are only reading professionally aligned things and some people are reading nothing at all that's professionally aligned. So it can be anything that's uh, kind of moving in and out of your world right now or even inspiring you in a different way. So fun. So I keep coming back to a book that I've read in the last year. It came out uh, around this time last year. And that book is Unreasonable Hospitality by Will Gadara. Um, those of you who may not be familiar with Will Gadara, he turned 11 Madison Park um, in New York in the, into the number one restaurant in the world. And a lot of his book is about how he did that. And you might say, okay, well, that feels like a big leap uh, between your profession of education and uh, the hospitality industry. But the truth is uh, there's a lot that we can learn um, as educators uh, from other industries, specifically those who are in um, into the customer experience and uh, customer service industry. And so I've really enjoyed um, like thinking about, you know, he did that not um, through 
the food, though the food I hear is, is delicious. He did it through the thing that he said he wondered, what will always be true? Because like, he saw people innovating around, innovating around food, weirder, crazier food combinations, you know, recipes. The food just kept getting more and more wildly innovative. And he thought, okay, but what if we innovated around something that will always be true? What will always be true? And what will always be true is people's desire to be well cared for. And that is always going to be true in our schools as well. And so I've just enjoyed thinking about, you know, his little um, subtitle for that book, the, uh, Unreasonable Hospitality. The subtitle is, I believe, uh, The Art of Giving People More Than They Expect. And I really enjoy thinking about that, um, you know, bring us back to caring well for people. I am going to order that book right now. That you just sold that like really well. I'm wondering how many other people are going to buy it after they listen to you talk about it. But what I love just from the title alone, what a beautiful concept. Uh, that sounds exactly, exactly in line with my philosophy of being a, a community manager. Like I, I think about this stuff constantly and there's so many things like, you know, it's a, a community manager and an educator talking about a book about the restaurant industry, like three mm. completely unrelated fields, kind of, but the work that we're doing is uh, extremely similar. Uh, and that, that to me is right. That's a different way of looking at bringing people together. It's one of my favorite things to read is different, different people, different industries, different walks of life, their versions of what it means to in in ways create create a better connected humanity really mm, and how really we, beautiful yeah we all have different ways that we're doing that uh and i think the people that commit themselves to that kind of concept what will always be true you know are the are the people that make strides in a very different way than and they stand out for making strides in a very different way than than we're used to seeing so thank you for sharing that that's really cool Thank you for that concept of, and I know I like jumped in because I just got so excited about the phrase connected humanity. Uh, I'll, I'll not to just keep dropping book titles, but another book that I love, um, not a newer book, but a beautiful book that you may be familiar with, um, Community, The Structure of Belonging by yes. Peter Block. Um, but something that he says is, um, how do you change the world one room at a time? Which room? The one you're in. And so what are we doing in the rooms we're in? Something that stuck with me from this talk with Megan was when she mentioned asking the question, what will always be true? I have it written in my notebook right here next to me. But I also want to bring up that quote I mentioned in my intro today, which was, we all have things in ourselves that only others see. So I'm going to leave you with two possible reflection questions today. What is something that will always be true? Or what about yourself do only others usually see? This is the first week, episode 30, where I am instituting reflection prompts or questions at the end of each episode. Typically, they will be asked by the guests themselves, but today I am kicking it off for you. You can reflect privately, of course, but if you follow me or Swivel on Twitter or Instagram, you can participate in the discussion there by replying to my posts. Additionally, we need you all to make some noise for this podcast. Please consider letting us know what you think by leaving a review or even just a rating in Apple Podcasts 
and you can reach me on Twitter at scandela9. The hashtag optimalist can be used when posting answers to questions that we ask here, especially if you can't find the original post, and I'll be sure to see it. I can also be reached at sarah at swivel.com. You can listen and subscribe to the Optimalist podcast wherever you love listening to great podcasts. New episodes are released every Wednesday and links to all of these resources are available in the show notes. The Optimalist podcast is brought to you by Swivel. At Swivel, we understand that the biggest challenge in education is the rate of change. Policy revisions, technological advancements, accelerated by AI, of course, evolving job markets and ongoing research constantly identifying new best practices are only some of the factors affecting the rate of change in education. To learn how Swivel can help you be more reflective, engaged, and adaptable, visit swivel.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening to The Optimalist, and I'll be back next week with a new conversation.